Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, this week we are going to uh, dip our toe into the world of Star Trek. We talk about Star Trek in this podcast one way or another almost every week, usually as a sort of by reference, but this week we're going to actually do uh, a Star Trek podcast, and we're going to be talking about uh, David Carson's uh, 1994 Star Trek Generations. Peter, Welcome. Welcome. Um, I thought this was sort of a good place to start because um, it's maybe a bit of a gray zone. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not Star Trek II. It's not Nemesis, right? Um, It's sort of in the middle of the pack, I think, to a lot of people. And again, for example, if we did a Star Trek II podcast, we'd we'd be talking for seven hours. I thought that this was something that was a little more manageable. Well, I think a lot of we make a lot of inside baseball um star trek references and this is definitely an inside baseball star trek movie because this is a fan base this is a star trek fandom oriented movie well and and you know it's funny because i have one of the things that i wrote at the very very top of my notes is is this a star trek movie or is this just a movie you know and like they clearly are kind of they're trying to have it both ways like they are there's a ton of stuff in here that's for the next generation and Star Trek fans, but there's also a lot in here that's to entice people who maybe don't go to watch Star Trek on Saturday nights to to come to the theater and see this movie. I don't know. I think it's just kind of a handoff. Like, it's the farewell to the old, old Star Trek at the time. Now it's all old. But uh, <laughs> this movie is 23 years old plus... Uh, and, um, but it's, it's really, it was a handoff from old Star Trek at the time to, to a new movie franchise as the next generation came to an end. And also with a different creative team at the helm. I mean, this is Rick Berman, Ron Moore, Brandon Braga. Like this is not the people who made Star Trek's one through six. Like this is the TV people making movies now. Right. And they made a few, right? Yeah, no, they remember. made uh, several to varying degrees of quality and success. Right. and Very, all, varying you know, degrees of quality and success. Right. And, you know, then they made more TV series and they syndicated everything. And, you know, they all made lots of money and sort of, I'm sure now are pretty much all either retired or semi-retired. But, well, they go uh, to conventions. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's their full-time job. Like, they go to conventions uh, now. I'll, uh, it's kind of like Galaxy Quest, but... A, less entertaining, and B, a little less sort of sad. Hey, listen, Marina Sirtis and Jonathan Frakes got to pay the bills somehow. Well, I'm sure they got tons of residuals over the years. I certainly hope they did. Um, Do you want to give a brief summary? This is a a movie that meanders a bit. Do you want to give a summary? Yeah, I mean, this is is sort of a complex plot, I have to say. They really made it. It's, It's quite complex. But the the key elements are that um, in the it's the handover from the USS Enterprise to launching the new USS Enterprise B and Captain Kirk from old Star Trek, the original series, uh, Mr. Scott and Mr. Chekhov, who are the three actors who agreed to be in the movie, I guess, are at the they're they're at the the maiden voyage to kind of sort of observe and they're treated as these you know old sort of starched old uh, shirts brought out from, from the closet. Dusted off. 
Right. They sort of brought out for a ceremony. And of course, some bad things happen and the ship has to go rescue <laughs> someone. And the, the captain is a little bit uh, uncertain of himself. And uh, Sulu's daughter, who, you know, we never knew Sulu had a daughter, but there she is at the helm. Uh, <laughs> Who's never seen or heard from again in the entire franchise. Uh, right. Um yeah, before or after, exactly. So uh, anyway, they they go, um, they have to go rescue someone. Captain Kirk plays the uh, sacrificial, previously Spock, sacrificial role of saving everyone and disappearing and dying at the time when he goes down to the deflector screen and fixes stuff. So he disappears and dies uh, historically at that moment. Then, uh, the, so they could jump ahead 78 years and the Enterprise um, is promoting Mr. Worf and um, C- Captain Picard hears that his fam- that some members of his family, his brother and his nephew were killed. This leads him to sort of a existential anxiety and misery and allows him to do some dramatic acting as he sobs over the loss of his legacy. Um, and at the same time, Dana data is trying uh, an, a new emotion chip so that he can become the comedic relief in the movie. Um, <laughs> this, they should have called the comedic relief chip. Uh, Cause that'd be, that's, that's his purpose. I liked when he uh, made the tricorder talk. <laughs> Yes, um, right. Okay, go ahead, go few, ahead. Continue he's with got your a few brief, good lines. Continue with your brief plot summary. Sorry, I'm right. Extremely brief. Uh, so anyway, there's some scheming Klingons and Geordi, and the Enterprise ends up uh, getting destroyed at the same time. Uh, Soren, who's the Malcolm McDowell evil scientist, um, ends up trying to kill trying to destroy an entire planet by knocking the sun out so that he can get back into um the what's it called the nexus right the nexus which which uh you know basically he 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 wants to go back so badly that uh i mean the guy it's basically like he's 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 um you know he's like a crystal meth addict and he's got to get his stuff and it doesn't matter who he's he's tweaking i believe is the term He's tweaking big time. <laughs> so he, he shoots a missile at the sun, destroys it. The Enterprise has to separate and crash onto the planet. This is uh, Riker's Enterprise, Picard's Enterprise. Uh, Picard ends up trying to stop this and ends up, he fails, and he ends up in the Nexus where um, Guinan, the bartender, uh, tells tells him, it reveals to him that he's his his family Christmas with his eight kids is not real, and that he just wants to feel good, and that he's in the Nexus, and she's there, but she's not there. Uh, this is what's left of her there, kind of like you know, like like skin flakes or dust. She's this is what's left of her in the Nexus, <laughs> but she's really still bartending on the Enterprise. And she, she she's like a finds, warm, she's like the warmth on a seat after you've gotten up and left. <laughs> <laughs> she's like beer farts. Uh, uh, the seat I'm not quite sure I would have gone there, but. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so she gives him some advice to go look for somebody who can help him get back to go save everyone because uh, he he doesn't really want to be with his family at, at Christmas. Um, he'd rather actually go back, kill Malcolm McDowell, and save this 
the solar system. Right. And then somebody so, important dies along the way. Um, and he, right. So he goes back to, so he goes and he finds Kirk who's been there for, for 80 years chopping wood and, um, in his front yard, flexing his, his, uh, muscles. And, um, after they chop some wood together, he convinces Kirk to go back with him and kill Malcolm McDowell, prevent the universe from, uh, prevent the solar system from being destroyed. And, and then there's a big, the big handover scene, Kirk, while he's helping, he falls off a cliff on a metal thingy and dies and, uh, you know, has a little brief handoff moment with Picard and then Picard buries him in a pile of rocks and everybody <laughs> flies away. <laughs> a pile of rocks and a, cir- and a, and a, a sorry, a uh, helicopter shot. Yeah, and a really <laughs> scenic, uh, you know, gravesite. <laughs> he like hauled his body up to the top of that thing, man. Which by um, the, just somehow is not, by the way, not very fulfilling because, you know, it doesn't, you know, they finally kill off Kirk, right? So they decide they have to kill off Kirk. And so I think they no were looking one, for something big to do. I mean, destroying right. the Enterprise wasn't big enough. They had to kill Captain Kirk. Right. And having Data make jokes, that was pretty big too. Not big enough. Uh, bringing back, you know, having a pair of evil female Klingons. You know, is just there were there were a lot of things that weren't big enough. They had to kill off Kirk, so they kill him off with the only person around is Picard, who he's never met, doesn't have any connection with whatsoever, really, except for the abstract fact that they're both Enterprise captains, right? And so it's sort of it's a little strange. So, you know, I've seen this movie a couple of times, and my opinion on it has good night, everybody. Over the <laughs> Sorry, <year. laughs> <laughs> so we're done now. <laughs> That's the end. Um, you know, what really strikes me in this movie is that it does not have a consistent tone. And what I mean by that is, like, there are some things in this movie that they really get right. Like, there are some tremendously well-done scenes in this movie. And there's also, a like, some – there's a lot of, like, sort of conspicuous sort of, like, awkwardness or stuff they didn't need or stuff that, like, really should have been edited. And, like, I'm amazed at how they sort of vacillate back and forth between – Got a right, blew it. Got a right, blew it. Got a right, blew it. And like, for example, uh, the, you know, the, like, I'm not sure, like, here, here, let, let's make a big, big 10,000 foot comment. Do you need Kirk on the second half of this movie? Like, is it, is it enough? Like, could they have done it where Kirk died on the Enterprise B, saving all of the Elorians, Malcolm McDowell and Whoopi Goldberg, and, Maybe that's enough for Kirk, and maybe the ball is then passed to Picard and company to stop Soren 78 years later. Like, did they need that at all? And I remember when I saw this in the theater, I was very conscious of the fact that Shatner and Patrick Stewart have zero chemistry. Zero. Like, their scenes don't mesh well. And I wonder if it's just because they're too used to being a star, and, like, it doesn't really work to have the two stars together because then who's the star? I don't even know if that's it. I just think the scenes are wooden and goofy. I mean, they're riding around on horses. Which is, I'm sure, Shatner. Have... You know, that must have been in Shatner's contract. Like, we must have three scenes involving horses. Right. right. And, you know, what's funny is, like, Shatner, all of Shatner's... Um, it, it just it doesn't make sense, right? So, 
you understand why Picard, in a way at least, why his emotional moment at his moment at his existential crisis is that he would have had a family and children and sort of a home as a base. And he's still wearing his uniform. So you kind of get the sense that maybe he's home from from cavorting around on the Enterprise, right? But he's got a bunch of kids and a wife. But what's Shatner like? Why is Captain Kirk, all of his hopes, his big, his best aspirations involve just being riding around on a horse or in a cabin chopping wood and right. not With have nothing to do. With a woman that we've never do. heard about before. Antonia. Right. It, it doesn't really... I mean, the whole, the whole, all of their scenes don't really, they don't but, uh, come the, together. But part of the well. problem with the movie is the Nexus makes no sense, right? And because the Nexus makes no sense, right? That, I mean, that, that's sort of the central uh, conceit of the movie is we're all sort of running around dealing with the Nexus. But the idea of the Nexus makes no sense, like a severe gravimetric distortion that runs around the galaxy every 39.1 years and makes all your dreams come true. Like, what? Like, it's like, they they struggle to explain it, so what they do instead is they don't. Like, they just sort of, everybody just accept that it exists and they move on for the story. But it's very, very hard to understand. It also doesn't make sense to me, and, and if you have an answer to this, I don't. Why is it that if you fly into the Nexus, you blow apart, but if the Nexus flies into you, you get paradise? Uh, it's very zen. I, I guess. <laughs> it's I all know. about intent. Yeah, but, I mean, it doesn't... It's it's hard to explain. So like like for example, the scene in Stellar Cartography, which is one of the great scenes in the movie, right? Where Data and Picard sit in this enormous map room, sort of this 3D holographic map room, and they realize that Soren is trying to you know, he's not just destroying the sun because he's evil, he's destroying the sun because he wants to move the ribbon, right? Because if the sun is destroyed, right. it'll affect the course of the ribbon. The Nexus. They will refer to the Nexus and the ribbon interchangeably. Um, right. And it's a very, way, very good scene because it looks great. I literally s- it, fell asleep through that uh, scene. Well, it looks Sorry. great. And Data's having an emotional <laughs> meltdown. And Picard has to sort of like yell at him to, to get his work done. Um, but um, why can't you go into the Nexus? Like, why does the Nexus have to come to you? How are those two things not the same? You know what I mean? Like, I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. to me, but whatever. Um, no, I but, mean, the Nexus, the Nexus is goofy. Although, you know, it's interesting. Just one, one, uh, one comment about stellar cartography is, you know, it's funny because I, you know, as a, as a result of, I'm sure this scene, they, they integrated stellar cartography into Voyager and Voyager has many, many similar scenes on a similar set. Um, that they call stellar cartography and they actually kind of plant seven there. Like that sort of becomes seven station on Voyager. But like the idea of having like this big map room for them to do exposition for the audience, it works very, very well and it looks good and people like to watch it. So it's a very efficient way for them to convey information to the audience. Um, they, they never had this problem have... on the original show, by the way. They, no, ne- no, no, they no, were they able just, to explain things. Spock without... looked into a scanner with a blue light and told you what you needed to know. Right, or they um, just said it. They didn't have to go somewhere. <laughs> right, but they didn't have CGI back then. Uh, yeah, and it was better for it because in they balance actually... of uh, in balance of terror, they have a, a like an actual leather bound star map book that they sort of pass around the briefing room in one scene. So I guess they've gone from a leather bound volume to the stellar cartography <laughs> set. 
So they were supposed to have the original crew in, the whole original crew, and then most of them passed. And you can honestly see why. Like Star Trek VI, we should actually do a podcast on Star Trek VI at some point, but Star Trek VI really, really ends with them metaphorically and literally signing off. I don't know if you remember, but the end of Star Trek VI is they sign their names on the screen. Right. It's like, um, thanks thanks for the memories. Right. Of. And and it's very, very much like we are done. And for example, Nimoy didn't want to come back. He kind of thought like, ah, I kind of, I did my piece. Some of the other characters passed, like George Takei kind of said like, well, look, I'm a captain already. Why would I come back and take orders? So, you know, George Takei said he didn't want to do it. And McCoy, D. Kelly actually wanted to do it. But they couldn't get insurance for him. Like the studio could not insure D. Kelly because no he was kidding. so old and so frail, he couldn't do it. Um, wow, what was so he to climb the rocks and you know? No, I, I'm what, telling what you, like do? he could not get That's insurance. Amazing. Is what I read. So, um, so in the end, they were left with Scotty, Chekhov, and Kirk, and they basically distributed the lines that were going to be for all the other original cast members amongst the three of them. Hmm. Um, so I, I actually think that the opening is quite good. Like there's, you know, Star Trek does best with humor when they use it sparingly. And there's yeah. enough little bits here, sort of like Kirk and the reporters, Kirk getting old. Um, like there's enough sort of humor in there to sort of keep you going. And they do a good job of sort of having Kirk and uh, Chekhov and 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 Scotty sort of like itching to help, especially Kirk, who's like springing out of his chair. And there's that bit where Scotty's like, "Is there a problem with your chair?" You know, right? And no, and that's good. Yeah, it's very very well done. And, and um, John Ruck, who plays Captain Harriman, does a good job at sort of being like the incompetent doofus in need of saving <laughs> <laughs> by Kirk. Um, and I think the best bit in the whole beginning scene, the whole sort of like uh, original series scene, is is when Kirk sits in the captain's chair. You know, Harriman goes, "I'll go fix the thing," and he runs off the bridge to the turbo lift. And there's a very very brief moment where where Kirk sits in the captain's chair, you know, and there's the, you know, and he decides not, but it's not right. And he has to sort of like get up and go like, no, 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 no. It's not right. Like this is your ship. And, and for the, perhaps the only time in the history of the series, it makes sense that the captain has to go and do the super dangerous thing. Usually it's ridiculous. You know, there's a 400 people on the ship and like Kirk has to beam down. But like here, they actually kind of explain it in a way that makes sense to the viewer that like, oh, you know what? It does make sense for Kirk to go down and try to fix the thing. Mm. And and the bit when, you know, where Kirk is killed, you know, he, I mean, it, there's, it's well known that Jimmy Doo and Scotty and, and Shatner there was no love lost between them. And, and, you know, Dewan does a good job of looking sad that Kirk is actually dead, which is, by the way, that's some serious acting if Jimmy <laughs> Dewan could pull that off. <laughs> but, but, but to bring it back to my question, like, do they, do you need Kirk in the second half at all? Like, it would have been a fine handoff and send off if they just had, you know, Kirk and company solved the first part of the problem. Picard and company solved the second part 78 years later. Do you need Kirk in the second half? Well, who's going to chop the wood? Exactly. Exactly. And and for example, like I just rewatched this movie and I practically forgot about that wood chopping. Like it didn't add anything, you know? Um, 
<laughs> Did you notice, by the way, there's two interesting cameos? Uh, well, technically three. There's three interesting cameos in the Enterprise B sequence. Mm, don't remember. You mean uh, Majel Barrett? So, the, <laughs> no. Well, I guess technically the um, the communications officer is Jeanette Goldstein, who is Vasquez and Aliens. Right. Um, Tim Russ. Tim Russ. That's right. Is the navigator? Yes. He play. He's Tuvok on Voyager. He had had some parts in uh, in TNG as well. Right. And then there's the, the red-haired guy who I think is on 24. I don't know his name, but he's sort of stuck in there as well. But there's a couple little cameos in the Yeah, I did, I did notice uh, Tim Russ particularly. Um, and I guess the Enterprise-B is really just the Excelsior model from uh, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Yeah, right? it kind of looks like it. do with the same model. Right. Um, yeah, I don't think it looks like it. I think it, I think it is it. I think that it is. Uh, right. It is the model just reused again. Um, you know, it's weird. Like, why don't they have more models? Like, you think with all this money, like, why do we see these same models from series to series to series to movie to movie to movie? Like, they can't hire, you know, Greg Jean or, or somebody else to make a model? No, they had to custom make a saddle for uh, Shatner, for the horse. <laughs> for Shatner's horse. <laughs> and a girl. Uh, I don't know. Um you know, what's funny about this movie is I did some reading about how they made it. And, you know, they they basically went, you know, uh, Next Generation ends with the two-parter or the two-hour episode, All Good Things. Um, and then they basically went straight into this movie. That's and right. And the funny thing is, like, this this movie is not made for a lot of money. Like, this is a surprisingly modest budget for a movie like this yep. i mean they made this thing for 35 million right and wikipedia says it made uh, which, 118 at the box office in prop you know, right but take. i mean that's not a lot of that's not a lot of money for a big star trek movie and it's funny because in some ways like the money is on the screen and in other ways like there are things that look cheap yeah um and for example um the, the they go aboard the solar array, the Amargosa solar array, and the Amargosa solar array is obviously the Enterprise B set, just redressed. Yeah. Like, and I, I had to look that up afterwards because I was like, for a second, I was like, wait, are they on the Enterprise B? But it's it's obviously the same the same set uh, that they've reused, and what's sort of littered around the set is just some random props from some episodes of TNG that they literally just scattered on the floor. So it's sort of an, like that looked cheap to me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yet at the same time, other things look like they spent a ton of money on. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like I thought it was sort of strange. Like, like, did you know that for example, only Picard and data had costumes made for this movie and the rest of them were using either reused costumes or costumes loaned from Deep Space Nine. Hmm. Like, they just raided the Deep Space Nine wardrobe. Like, they couldn't afford to make costumes for the main cast? Well, I mean, you know, the costumes for the show are are pretty fancy for the TV show. I guess, you know, do they really have to? Like, do they have to go make some? Well, I don't know. I mean, it just just struck me as, uh, as odd that that you know when i read that like they you know i think jonathan frakes is wearing avery brooks's costume in this movie avery brooks who plays captain cisco on deep space nine like like 
Really? Like they didn't have a pair of pants? <laughs> well, at least you didn't have to go pantsless. I think you did have to roll up a tube sock and put it in there, though. <laughs> Play his trombone. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like that just that struck me as a little bit odd. Um, so anyway, then we jump to uh, we jump to the future. Worf gets promoted um, in a scene aboard an old sailing ship on the holodeck, and Worf and uh, Gates McFadden get uh, thrown into the drink, which I actually thought was that's it's 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 funny. Like Worf getting dropped in the water isn't funny, but the bit where Data throws Gates McFadden into the water as sort of impetus for him to get his emotion chip. I thought was a funny gag. It was okay, but it was too much. That whole scene felt too much like the TV series in a way. I don't I mean, I don't know. Well, this, yeah, okay. but this was written by people who wrote the TV series. I mean, this, you know, this is directed by David Carson, who is essentially a television director. Like he has four films to his credit and he has hundreds of TV credits. So, yeah. I mean, you know, in a way that it, it is just a big episode. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, but they're trying to, they try to to get to a little bigger dramatic themes in the movies, right? And yeah, no, and they, and they, I think they do hit some, some bigger themes. I mean, it is interesting to see Picard sort of grappling with like his life choices, you know, like I'm doing all this stuff running around, but I don't have a family. Right. Well, the theme of the music is, uh, sorry, the movie, the theme of the movie is, um, what should you, what's your legacy? I mean, how important, how do you measure your legacy and how do you assess success, you know, looking back on your life? The, the answer the movie gives is do well. And it doesn't matter what you leave behind. It's how you did in terms of who you took care of, what kind of good you did. Did you help? I mean, what's the line that Kirk says at the end? Did we... Uh, did we make a did difference? Did we make a difference, right. So did you make a difference? So that's death and when you die, where does it matter? When does, does it matter when? Does it matter where? Those are the big themes in the movie. And, you know, they, they don't really try to to stretch out to reach big existential themes on a TV show. They they have scenes with more like the ship, um, you know, the, Enterprise, the, the wharf promotion scene. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that the, the data thing is mostly well handled. Like, you know, they... For some reason, it's a different prop, by the way. The emotion chip looks totally different in the show. Like, maybe they lost the prop or they didn't think it looked good on the big screen, but it's a different prop. But No, that's what they know, spent like, Riker's pants money on, was the new chip. <laughs> right, the new emotion <laughs> the chip. New and, emotion and chip. And the ability to take that tap of uh, Data's head off right. so that uh, Jordy could stick it they in. They got new LEDs um, for, for a dome. <laughs> right. <laughs> dome. Um... um so there's a lot of sort of confusing stuff about why Malcolm uh, McDowell um, is with the the Klingons while they're sort of going back and forth uh, with Data and the emotion ship. And like, for example, you know, when Data has his big meltdown on the the array where he's sort of telling jokes uncontrollably and can't stop laughing. Right. You know, the situation sort of quickly turns dire and Malcolm McDowell is running around with uh, the Duras sisters, uh, Lursa and Bator, who are actually, I think they're pretty funny. They're in a couple episodes of the show, Barbara March and Gwyneth Walsh. Mm -hmm. uh, and they sort of do a good job of chewing up uh, the scenes that they're in. Right. With their Klingon dentures, I guess. Um, <laughs> but it's not really clear. Like there's this sort of talk of Romulans and then, and then 
And then uh, I keep calling him Alex because I'm thinking of Clockwork Orange, but Malcolm McDowell is, uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he's, he's with the Klingons. And, and most of that is just, I think, a lot of baloney and, and sort of gibberish just to involve the Dura sisters, who I think, A, look good on screen, B, are fan favorites, and C, are kind of disposable. Like, they're big enough characters that they're known to the audience, but they're not so big that we can't kill them off. Right. It's another it's another fandom kind of inside. Right, but for the non-fan, they're just two evil Klingon women with a ship. Right. Who actually apparently apparently they didn't even have much of a ship. They only had a piece of that set. So the uh that's the sort of the same Klingon ship they've been using since Star Trek three. Uh the set. Right. And apparently like they only had a little bit of the set. So their scenes are sort of cleverly filmed to sort of hide the fact that it's maybe a quarter of what they had for the other movies. It's kind of all that was left, I read. By the way, they're, wear- they're wearing Christopher Lloyd's pants from Star Trek <laughs> 3. <laughs> right. Commander Cruz, I believe. Uh, Hulk Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> That's a taxi joke that very few people will get anymore. I don't know. Anybody um, who, people that watch Star Trek watch Taxi, probably. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But I don't know. I've mentioned, ta- I've made a couple of taxi jokes at work. I'm like, no one got them. <laughs> maybe it was my delivery that was terrible. Um, so we get to um, the second of the big set pieces, right? The first of which is the opening action scene. I guess there's kind of a half of an action scene where the Amargosa array is destroyed. Um, and then, so the, the, the second really big set piece is the attack on the Enterprise, right? When the Klingons attack the Enterprise. And this is this is kind of what I was talking about earlier where I feel like they do something great and then they kind of wreck it. And 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 like, you know, okay, they they futz with Geordi's visor so they can read something off a display, and this number on the corner of a screen is the magic bullet that they can you know, attack the Enterprise and get their weapons through their shields. So that's a little bit of silly nonsense. Um <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, uh, why couldn't they just scan the ship and figure out the frequency the shields are going at? I don't, anyway, um, but the, the actual attack scene is really cinematic. Like, it looks terrific. And they, they film it in ways that you really couldn't do on the show. Like, they film the model from angles and the music is good. Um, and it's it really is sort of like a, an intense and violent space combat scenes. I guess you can't really say it's between capital ships because the, the bird of prey is so small, but it, it, I I don't know. Like to me, like I've seen that scene many, many times and it holds up extremely well. It's definitely more cinematic. There's more, uh, control panels blowing up and the crew fly people being hurled around the bridge. Yeah. They fly flying over everything. Right. Cause normally they, they just will kind of jump around or roll or take a dive. Right. Shake left, shake, right. Right. But this time, or they'll fly backward, but manually, you know, um, when when a control panel smokes. But this time, they actually like cat. They use catapults and stuntmen, and there's like three or <laughs> yeah, four. Yeah, there's of that them. one guy flies over the back. <laughs> right, there's a whole bunch of them. They're like flying from one end of the bridge to the other. There's a lot of catapult work. Right. By the way, there's some guy who got a SAG card because he was that guy. You know, he like he went. Oh! <laughs> when they when they catapulted him over the top and he was like oh that counts as a line i get my sag card <laughs> uh, i don't know who that guy is but somewhere out there when he watches that he says that's me that's me <laughs> yep it's on, a, it was on his um, resume but but it's good you know Riker is yelling and screaming um 
you know, like stuff is hitting the fan uh, and the bridge takes a real beating. By the way, it's a different bridge set from the show. They actually built a new set. This isn't the same set from the show. It's slightly bigger. Mm. Um, and then, and this is, this is what I mean. Like when they, when they, you know, they devise this ridiculous way, if we can, you know, recross the power and the sensor to the or shield resonance frequency, blah, 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 blah. They're able to somehow uh, fire back and destroy uh, the Dora sisters. It's it's a conspicuous reuse of um, General Chang's bird of prey being destroyed in the prior movie. Like, it's just... <laughs> They literally just take the exact same 10 seconds of footage and slot it in. And like, it looks bad. Like the film stock is different. Like it doesn't even look (laughs) like the same film stock as the rest of the scene. And I remember when I saw it, it just took me right out of the movie. And I was like, they couldn't blow up another model, like millions of dollars making this thing. And they had to reuse a scene from the prior movie that just came out a year ago? Is that is really? that the scene where Sulu shows up in the Excelsior and goes target yes, that explosion? Right, exactly, and fire. exactly. Where Christopher right, where Christopher Plummer gets killed, he plays General Chang. Um yes. it's exact and there's actually there's another scene in the movie that's lifted from Star Trek Six where the bird of prey is in flight and that's lifted from Star Trek Six. So that's sort of what I mean. Like like it was it's a great scene, but I mean again Probably non-Star Trek fans didn't notice it, but I will bet you a lot of Star Trek fans noticed that it's the same scene, both the interior shots and the model shot of the bird of prey blowing up. Like, it's lame. It's lame. And and it's weird is because, like, I've read some some stuff where David Carson, the director, commented that he remembered when they blew up the model, but they didn't blow up the model. Like, that's from the prior movie. It's very strange. Well, the fans, while they were recognizing that, were also thinking, like, Hmm. That was a better. That movie was more fun. So it was. Well, and, and, and we should do Star Trek Six. I think Star Trek Six is a better movie overall. It makes it certainly makes more sense, and it's way more internally consistent. And we can talk about this more if we ever do a Star Trek Six podcast. Star Trek Six is basically the entire movie is Shatner and Nimoy and D. Kelly kind of winking at the audience and kind of like almost sort of like it's like a meta movie because they have all these conversations where they're really talking about Star Trek when they're ostensibly talking about the plot of the movie. Yeah. Um, and then, but then we transition to set piece, big set piece number three, which is the Enterprise crashing. Yep. Which I think is, as you may disagree, I think it's the best scene in the entire movie. Except that they don't, I don't think they get the deceleration right in the the ship. Like, just watching again this time, I don't know. There's something wrong about the way they're flying around. I don't don't know. know. I mean, it looks, it looks great and it it truly feels, it feels big, harrowing. Yeah, it feels, you know, it's funny because, you know, like the ship gets beat up all the time in the show. And I remember, like, I remember distinctly when I saw it and I saw it with my roommate at the time who's a big fan. And, you know, when they were like, oh, let's separate the ship. I was like, because every time they ever separated the ship and TNG, it was awful. Like it was stupid or it was it was somehow ineffective. And and I remember thinking, like, <clears throat> this is the only time that separating the ship was effective with the dramatic tension. Like, like they're not separating the ship like they're abandoning the ship like they're all running. There's all those sort of shots of Jordy and the doctor, you know, like they even have this sort of gratuitous shot of the teddy bear on the ground that some little kid left there. 
um, and you know they're running to get to the saucer, uh, and then it's done very very quick. Like it's this is my I think this is my hats off to David Carson in this scene. You know, like when they separate from uh, the secondary hall. It's very, very dramatic and well done, and it's edited fast. Like they're barely away from it, um, and it blows up. You know, right? And it blows up, and there's that very good exchange where you know, uh, you know, where uh, Troy says separation complete, and and uh, Data says core breach in progress. Like right after, like there's no gap in that in that dialogue, and they're right on top of it. And it blows up. But I remember I, I looked at my roommate at the time, and we were like. Ooh, they did it! Like they really pulled that trigger. Like they wrecked the ship. And then, right. and then I think I I could be wrong. I I haven't seen all of the modern Star Trek movies. Um, I was I was too busy vomiting in the aisle during two thousand nine's Star Trek. Um, I didn't see any more of them, but I believe that this may be it's it's definitely the first the first use of profanity. I mean, Data says, right when they when yeah. they see the planet looming in the viewer right. data says oh shit right it's the it's another one of data's comedic moments right and it's actually it's a great moment because like you know like it worked profanity the doesn't exist in star trek it, right. i think it, it holds yeah. up pretty well like i remember like it because you know like it's such a tense scene and then they have sort of a laugh right right before yeah. they cut away like it's a very very well done scene and actually like they actually make effective use of troy like to have sort of troy take the helm uh, for that scene because otherwise she's sort of sitting there doing nothing whereas she's sort of helping in the crisis right well she's, um, there's no reason for her to be on the bridge as well and then you know then the ship crashes and in, in, in a very i think a good scene there's a lot of practical effects there it's clearly a model it's not cg like it's clearly a model on a set yeah. that they're they're wrecking and then the whole movie like it's i think it's the high point of the movie and then the whole movie slows down yeah Right, and then all of a sudden, it's just Kirk and Picard and the Nexus stuff. Yep, and it doesn't really, you know. And then, and work. even, and I don't know. You may disagree with me, but even the fight on the planet Viridian Three, even the fight on the planet is, it's not that exciting. It's not good. The only thing, maybe a, a little surprising, is how fast. Kirk falls literally, you know, they, they don't stretch out him falling off a cliff basically to his death. Right. Um, they, they do that quickly. And, uh, and even, you know, his death scene is relatively compact when they go talk, but, but the whole, yeah, that, it, it the doesn't whole have a ton of impact on the viewer. Like there's not little. a lot, because there's not a lot of buildup to it. Like he dies quick and his, you know, his final on screen words as captain Kirk are not, you know they're not uh, they're not the greatest. Oh my! Right. Well, which the, apparently was ad libbed by Shatner. Yeah, I think I remember him talking about that later. But I think that yeah, and it, even before the oh my, the the, the sort the of oh my, oh my. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where he got the he oh my from. You just sounded like Joey on Friends. No, it's George. George Takei. That's George (laughs) Takei's big. I thought you sounded like Joey from Friends. No, George Takei is always. (laughs) That's his like his lot. He he says that. I think Howard Stern used it as a like a sound effect all constantly. (laughs) Oh my! (laughs) Um, So Um, maybe he got it from George Takei. That would be pretty funny. Maybe, but uh, no, it's just it's not it's not a great it's not a great scene. 
It's well, it's that's not a bad scene, but for the death of James T. Kirk, it's awful. Um, it's just, it's just, it sort of it comes and goes without a lot of oomph. And you can almost imagine, I, you almost imagine if they had that burial scene with Kirk and the hell, sorry, with Picard in the helicopter shot, because they kind of realize, like, hmm, maybe this isn't so good, you know? Yeah, they tried to have a scenic vista replace impact. Well, I know that this is this is not the original ending. They they filmed a completely different ending that the audience didn't like. Um, <laughs> I wonder no, it's true. Was, no, it's true. So this is like. actually this is the second ending. Uh, this is the second ending that they used. So I don't know. And then and then there's uh, there's some wrap up at the end um, where I guess you know like like the scenes of the ship on the ground are good and the scenes of them sort of walking through, like there's a nice bit where Troy and um, data find um, data's cat spot, which I thought is a very effective scene where uh, data cries. Although I found myself wondering like what's in data's tears, like where, where are they coming from? <laughs> like what, what fluid is that? That's what he, <clears throat> what he eats. And he, you know, every time he drinks something, he just cries it out later. Right there. I mean, there is a scene where he goes to the bar in this movie, right? Yep, it's another whoopee. And he doesn't like the drink. Maybe that's the drink. It's the drink, (laughs) right? When he's but then why does his but then his but then his makeup runs? (laughs) Like this is supposed to be his skin, but his makeup runs. I don't know. Like 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 emotionally, it's a good job, and Spiner's a good actor, and he does a decent Uh job. But it is it is odd that he cries and that his makeup runs. Well, in 1994, they didn't have great makeup technology. Right. So originally, Kirk was shot. Actually, so I just looked this up. Kirk is originally shot and killed by Soren, and they felt that it was too brief. So they, they reshot it with the, uh, with the gantry uh, breaking. So that was actually... So the original is just Kirk getting shot. I think in the original... Um, no, the original scene, he cut Kirk's uniform off of him while, sing, while singing Singing in the Rain. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's funny about Malcolm McDowell is like I don't know if he gives a crap anymore you know like he kind of plays the same character in every movie like he's on Entourage uh, for a while he plays um, sort of a studio head in Entourage and he basically plays him exactly the way he plays Dr. Soren well I'm pretty sure he, he, has, he didn't give a crap about Dr. Soren <laughs> no no I think he cared about the check he got oh, yeah, um, no and you know he has the same he hasn't changed his haircut like he has the same haircut in every movie for the last like 15 years like I think that must be written in his contract like you know Mr. McDowell can only have one hairstyle and this is it because he looks the same in everything he does his own hair and um, makeup <laughs> part of his contract yeah, no. <laughs> uh. um they uh, apparently and apparently this is the uh, I think that they actually did use the model from the show for this um, the the model since we're talking about the ship crashing like this is apparently the model from the ship because I guess the model from the ship was enough detail that they could film it hmm. um, but I think and I think after this and all the other movies it's all just CG um, did you think let me ask you a global question do you think uh, do you think that the comedy worked. I remember when I saw it when it came out in the theater that Data's lines worked. I think when I'm sitting on my couch, uh, literally dozing. 23 years later. Yes, 23 years later, 
um, uh, they're okay at best. A couple of the lines. I, it wasn't as funny to me now, but I remember in the theater at the time, it was funny. I think two of the data gags hold up really well. One is his sort of fist bump. Yes. You know, yeah, when they, yeah. After when they, they kill the Klingons. the Klingons, he sort of pumps his fist in the air. Yes. yes! Yeah. That was... And I think, and I think data using profanity, like, you know, like only Nixon could go to China and only data could swear and get away with it on this show. Right. I don't know. I, I'm, I wonder if they swear in any of the other movies, the ones with Chris Pine and Zach Quinto. I don't know the answer. You know, there's a, there's a subtle little, uh, pun there i thought was kind of funny where when the klingons open fire at the enterprise they say fire at will and will Riker is in command i thought that was a little, little joke um mm. you know what i thought was weird that so the, the big problem i have with the movie and i keep saying it because like the more i think about it the worse it gets is is everything involving soren and the nexus is gibberish Yep. You know, and it's the crux of the movie. And a lot of it sort of, it sort of degenerates into the mad scientist, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the common complaints about science fiction is half of all science fiction movies are a mad scientist. And it's true. And, and this is kind of a bad example of that. Like, like, I don't know, like the whole Nexus thing, like the more you think about it, the less sense it makes. And, you know, like, would Kirk really, really, really leave paradise? Really? No. Really? Absolutely not. Right? Like, like if I took you to the greatest place you ever went, where all of your Peter dreams came true, and you had everything you wanted all the time, every day, and I said, hey, can you come with me to this sweltering desert to fight this guy that you don't know? Right. And you'll never, ever be able to come back here. You'd be like, mm, let me think about it. No. Right. And you, right? Don't, and you don't know who I am and if I'm, telling, if I'm feeding you a line <laughs> of crap or not. Right. Like, it's just, it's, it's a big, big, big stretch. And somehow, like, you know, it, like Guinan spent 78 years trying to get over the Nexus and, and, and Soren is doing everything he can to get back in. Yet Kirk is like, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, let's go, let's go have some fun. You know, yeah. Like, it's a little hard to, to buy. And they have the bit where he realizes it's an illusion, but still, it's a little, it's a little shaky. You know what else struck me as weird? I don't have an answer for this. When when Soren fires the rocket into the sun, yeah, it reaches the sun in about four seconds. Absolutely, I mean that's some acceleration. Basically, <laughs> well, and the other thing that's weird—it's well, got is, a warp drive on it. Okay, fine. Let's just say let's just say for the purposes of Star Trek internal logic that the little rocket that's about the size of a bicycle uh, has a warp drive on it. Mm-hmm. It gets dark instantly. Like, wouldn't it take? Maybe the rocket has a warp drive, but the the photons coming from the sun don't have a warp drive, and like it gets dark instantly. And they're supposed to be, you know, you know, I don't know, tens of millions of miles from the sun. No, that sun's Why a red. Why does it get dark? Because it's, it's a red dwarf, and it's like it's like ten thousand <laughs> miles up. Right, but like it gets dark right away. Right, it's just <laughs> like, really close. On. You know, or I should say that the night filter was put over the lens right away. It's probably a fairer way to say it. Um, Yep. I don't know. It's a little silly if you asked me. Uh, And, you know, it's like little things like that kind of take me out of the movie and it just looks dumb. You know, know. uh, you're absolutely right. But on the other hand, there's no conservation of momentum in any any science fiction movie (laughs) except for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Well, that's just because the internal dampeners are working, you see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know, but so this is kind of what I get back to, like like the pendulum swings. Good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. You know, like 
like Klingons fighting Enterprise, good. Reuse of footage from Star Trek Six in Gratuitous Manner, bad. Crash scene, good. Nexus scenes, bad. You know, like I think you're being like, too generous. I think the pendulum is mostly on the bad, and occasionally, I, I, I don't mean, know. I think I think some of this work, some of the bits 50, in this 50. worked very well. I don't know. I'm I'm obviously a Star Trek fan, but I think that some of the big big moments work well. But again, you know, I. And I've said this before, so I won't harp on it, but I kept finding myself on this rewatch wondering, like, did we need Kirk at all in the second half of this movie? I mean, my complaint... And is it a better... Sorry. No, I think you're right. There's lots of things wrong. I mean, I think you're right that, that for that plot element, you don't need it. But I think the problem with the movie is it feels deliberate and engineered. It doesn't feel like a, a fun story in a way or a real story. It feels like... It feels very engineered. So a movie like, you know, like Star Trek Two, which is engineered in the sense that you're you're pulling up an old, uh, you're pulling somebody out of an old episode of original Star Trek to use kind of as a device. But and then, you know, you, you do you, for example, use a dramatic element where you kill Spock off at the end. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> Spock dies? <laughs> sort of uh yeah maybe kind of for about 10 minutes um but but for for those small conceits um that movie is it's it it's dramatic it's sort of it's sort of it's entertaining and it's fun and it, it takes you someplace but it's it doesn't incredibly feel, internally consistent too yeah it doesn't feel Which so this movie calculated lacks. this movie just feels calculated to me i don't know it doesn't feel it, it doesn't feel like it's taking me on a ride as a story. It feels like they they made a checklist of things they wanted to do. And then every time they did a rewrite, every time they, they edited, they marketed, they reshot. They, every time they just referred to the checklist. Are we doing these things that we need to do? You know, are so we here's a 10,000 foot view question for you. Yeah. Right. Kirk and company sign off at the end of. Uh, the undiscovered country, Star Trek Six. Did they need even Act One of this movie? Like, like were the fans saying we have to have a bridge between the movies? I don't think so. Like, why nope. couldn't they just make a pure next gen movie? Right. I don't like, know did, why. Did Scotty and Kirk and Chekhov need to be in this at all? Like, I mean, was no. the idea like they were like, hey, we'll get Shatner and Patrick Stewart in this, and we'll make a lot of money? Like, um, was that the idea that they worked? backwards from no i i think they they did not need to have a bridge movie i'm not sure why no pun the, intended right yes uh i don't think they needed to do it and you know that i mean tng is, was unbelievably popular when this thing came out i mean they truly went yep. out on top yeah and and uh that's still i think for people a little younger than us uh, that's Star Trek, you know, that they grew up watching that. That was on when they were a kid. So um, I've met people who are so young that they've said to me that to them, Star Trek is Voyager. You know, like that's what they think of as Star Trek. Like, well, you met that one you know, guy. They, they, uh, were, too, <laughs> they were too young. Right. No, they were too young to even watch Next Gen. I thought it just went from so, Next so, Gen to uh, Chris Pine. And there really wasn't <laughs> right. much in between. Seriously. So. So here's a question. Well, I don't know. I disagree with you. I actually, I actually think that all of the shows have uh, their good and their bad parts. But I don't. I don't think you can just write off 
the other three shows. You can't write them off if you're a Trekkie or whatever you want to call it. But if you're the kind of average TV watcher, I really think it's like the original show, Next Gen, and then the Chris Pine movies. Those so, are the three stages. So let's say you're Joe Sixpack and you're not a Trekkie. Yeah. Does this work for you as a movie or is this so deeply mired in Star Trek lore that it doesn't have broad appeal? Like, remember, we said way in the beginning, right? You can look at this as a Star Trek movie or as a movie. No, I don't think it works. I think it's at best mediocre for that guy because I think that person is going to, they're going to get the feeling that this movie is made up of a checklist, even if they maybe couldn't put their finger on why it wasn't great. Uh, they would get the feeling that this movie was was over-engineered. And I don't think that there's that much meat for them there. I think there's a few scenes they'd like, and they probably would respond to the humor from the data's, you know, comp- comedic relief. Um, and then maybe a couple special effects, a couple battle scenes, and that's it. So I think it would be mediocre mm. at best for them. I think this is a, this a really inside baseball movie. Uh, it, they're really aiming at at the, the the faithful and trying to supply them with certain bridging plot elements across the series and throw little bits of meat at them here and there. And I just, I, I don't, I don't think it's great. I think it has a few good scenes in it the way you say, but I just, I don't think it accomplishes as much as a, as a work. So you're, it's interesting because you're sort of, parodying or not parodying i apologize parodying roger ebert is that what he said and roger roger ebert basically felt that there was too much emphasis on in jokes or sort of like you had to have too much knowledge of the show to really enjoy it as an outsider so you're i mean you're saying your comments are very very similar to ebert's 94 review the thing about for example but I liked Star Trek six better and that was insider and Star Trek two, you enjoy in two different ways if you're an insider or not. Right. Because the movie is, is fun and successful either way, but the movie is more significant to you if you're an insider, because that movie revitalized the franchise and you don't really care if it revitalized the franchise or not. If you're just a viewer, just a moviegoer. Right. Hmm. So I think yeah, it's, it's a good point. It's still different to you because, you know, look, when when Star Trek two came out and we were teenagers, right? Uh, fair, you know, early we were teenagers. young teenagers, right? young teenagers. OK, but we're kind of in the the, the original Star Trek uh, viewership. We're oh, maybe, yeah. we're, maybe, we're, we're squarely in that box. Right. But we're probably a little towards the younger side of, of those people. Right. Because. Yeah. But stretch- I mean, but we, but we, we grew up watching, you know, Star Trek at 6 PM, six nights a week. Right. Correct. Um, when that, when we saw that movie and it came out, it was, it was very significant to us. I mean, Star Trek one was incredibly disappointing. Star Trek, the motion picture. And then it had it had zero meat on the bone. It had it. it I mean, talk about a bloodless uh, a bloodless picture. That was it, right? Well, I think I think you know I've thought a lot about Star Trek one over the years, and and I remember when I saw it, I saw it in the theater with my my father and my brother, and I remember we all walked out and we were so flat, right? Like 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 
my brother and I were like, they didn't look like they did on the show. They didn't act like they did on the show. Like, like we were sort of puzzled by it. Although in many ways, the motion picture or the motionless picture, as people like to say, <laughs> um, you know, the motion picture, it gets much, much better as you get older because like, there's a lot there about getting older and sort of midlife in that movie that like now I find very, very interesting. Like I actually find uh, the motion picture very watchable now in a way that I, I didn't as a kid, like, but again, that also, that also means it was wrong. Like it was released as a huge, big budget sci-fi movie, not something that you could find, uh, you know, some thoughtful bits of reflection on as a middle-aged person decades later. Like it didn't work. Uh, it, it made a ton of money only because there was so much hunger for it. But like, right. I don't think it was, you know, people didn't fall in love with it. I think they were um, massively disappointed. And then I think when, the, you know, when Star Trek two came out, it, it was it, like the thing was saved. Well, exactly. And it felt like the series. I mean, it felt like a cinematic version of the series. Right. And, and they were, like. they were written better and they were written in character. Yeah. They were the they were the people you, you knew and loved, right? I and mean, these are you, we grew up with watching that show, right? And it, so we really, I mean, we were way, but, were hunger. We had a hunger for that them to come back. But to jump to generations, they did not make that mistake here in the sense that everyone is pretty much in character. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it doesn't feel bloodless, and it doesn't feel like it's not the same thing. Like it very, very much feels like you know you're watching the next generation cast in good character. Like, I think that's something they got right. They got that right, but it feels uh, overproduced, calculated. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't. Well, maybe a little, yeah, maybe a little too, I mean, overproduced is not a bad word for or sort of like, you know, overplanned, screen tested, you know, nothing was left to chance, but, you know, you could argue that they could have just taken a good episode script that they hadn't filmed, expanded it, and then it probably would have been okay. Yeah. You know, they was there, like I said, like this show was really popular. You know, and, and um, the thing is the next generation more broadly was not it, it does not translate into cinematic expanse big pictures as well as the original series did because the original series was was so uh, was much more effusive and it was it was much less cerebral in a way but, and restrained right it was more well no it was but it was more so it wore its emotions more in its sleeve much more you know, I mean, and a lot of that is because, you know, Patrick Stewart sets the tone for the whole show and he's a more restrained character as Picard, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think they also intended the show to be not to have any of the flaws of the original show, which for the time. And to, well, and to be less emotional. I mean, they have a psychiatrist sitting on the bridge for crying out loud. Right. They have a psychiatrist and. Everything, Captain. I sense great anger. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the whole... really, really, Troy, because they're shooting at us. I'm, I'm sensing some anger myself. <laughs> right, and 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 you know the there really there is an actual robot. You know, Spock aspires to be a robot, but he isn't, and in the end, sort of realizes that he doesn't really aspire to be a robot in many ways. Right. And, right, Spock's character arc concludes. Right, and and data and, 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 is and a I robot. guess in a way, data's does data's does too in the in the latter next gen movies. 
right? I mean, there's there's four next gen movies, right? There's Generations, there's Insurrection, there's First Contact, and there's Nemesis. Um, and and really only two of them are, are are any good. Insurrection is not good, and Nemesis is basically largely unwatchable. I mean, even even the the cast and of the show openly say how terrible Nemesis was. Whereas First Contact has some good bits. But, you know, they also had to figure out how to translate to the to the big screen, you know. Like a lot of a lot of the episodes of any of the Star Trek series are sort of very small character driven stories and they can't they can't just do that in a two hour big budget big screen movie. Yeah. It's amazing how much the medium affects everything, you know, like like you know, watching Star Trek on your 20-inch Sony Trinitron in 1989 is a very, very different experience than watching it on the screen in 1994. And they have to adjust every last thing for that. Like, it's sort of interesting. Like, TV has an intimacy, you know, that, that the movies they can have, but a big sci-fi movie has got to be bigger in scale and scope. Yeah. You know, the reviews on this movie are very mixed. Like, um, most of the reviews in this movie are sort of lukewarm. And if you kind of read, I read a bunch of the contemporary reviews, and, and they basically say something to the effect of, it was really, really fun to see the next-gen cast on the big screen, but... And then there's sort of a discussion of all the problems that people had with the movie. Yeah. I think I agree. Um, yeah, I don't know, but I tell you, on rewatching it, I will I will go back and say that the the battle with the Klingons, the opening scene, and the crashing of the Enterprise, I think, work very very well. Like I think I think those three scenes alone are worth it for me. Right, and I will forgive a lot of Nexus crap that I find difficult to swallow and uninteresting to watch. For that scene of the saucer crashing is terrific. Yep. So you want to leave it there? Should we wrap there? Anything else? No. Nah. We're just over an hour. Anything else you want to say? Nah. We just spent an hour talking about a <laughs> mediocre Star Trek movie. <laughs> I know, but it's kind of our first uh, our first big Star Trek podcast. Yes, so. we did refer to other things. We, we, we've, uh, we've been saving it up a little bit. Yeah, we're saving the worst for... Well, not the worst. We're just saving the mediocre <laughs> no, it's for the last. Middle. That's, why I, that's why I picked this. It's the middle. It's not the best. It's not the worst. It's very, very squarely in the middle. I know. I kind of only want to talk about Star Trek 2 and maybe 6. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Star Trek 2 and we're... We have to be careful because we could, like I said, we could do seven hours in Star Trek too. Like, like it really is the high water mark. Yep. Like, it's going to be. It's so hard for them to topic, and even the even some of the other movies that come afterwards that are very very good. Like, none of them really approach Star Trek too. Like, it's just, it's amazing how they got it so right, especially after all the errors and problems of the motion picture. Yep. Like it's a it's a one eighty and. And it cost a fraction of what uh, the motion picture costs. Like they made it for a fraction of the money and it's better right. because it's writing. Like the, the whole thing is so well written from, from start to finish. Yep. And basically, and it looked good. It was cinematic. And I mean, the, everybody, the first thing everybody thought when they saw that movie walking out was that was great. And I had a fantastic time. And the second thing everybody thought was, oh, thank God. You know, <laughs> right, right. We're saved. Like, like, like Nick Meyer and Harv Bennett, yep. right, and Jack Soward, right. The director and the guys who wrote that. Like, I, I take my, I doff my hat to you, sirs. Yep. 
Like you say, like, no, if there's no Star Trek 2, there's no Next Gen, there's no Deep Space Nine, there's no Voyager, there's no Enterprise, there's no reboot, there's nothing, right? There's nothing. Like, if they had had a second stinker in a row, the thing would have been dead forever. Yep. All right. Let's end it. <sighs> All right. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll contemplate another Star Trek uh, down the road. Sounds good. Good night. Good night.